Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Clyde, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producers, Adam Kamara and Alexandra Lynn of Racket Media. And today's guest, Daniel Torday, a novelist, author of The Last Flight of Poxel West, which won the National Jewish Book Award, and most recently, of Boomer One, published by Picador Press. And me, the slumming angel, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Dan, pleasure to have you here. A real pleasure to be on, gentlemen. Can you tell us uh, what we will be discussing today? Yes. So our central text for the day is going to be one of my favorite books, The Art of Biblical Narrative by Robert Alter, that we will be straying into. uh, Also, uh, said Robert Alter recently completed the first ever single person translation of the entire Bible. So we will be uh, referencing some of his translations there, including uh, his, his book of Jonah. It's quite an accomplishment, a single person translation of the Bible. And I think it would be not only fair, but basically beyond dispute to say that Alter is the premier uh, biblical translator really of the past at least 50 years, maybe the past century, um, and that he introduced a new approach to biblical translation that really is um, the theme and the subject of a literary approach to the Bible. Yeah, it's well, it's, and I will say I. Uh, so uh, I sort of joke, not joke, but mostly jokes that uh, <laughs> the, both my first two books won the National Jewish Book Award, and I suddenly realized that I probably should pretend like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and and uh, I've been working on a book uh, for a couple of years now that's about a false prophet. And so, in going through the various Bibles, I have like a tiny bit of Hebrew, but really need to read them in English, and found. Um, it's actually kind of hard to know which one to read. And from like a American perspective, probably one needs to read the King James. Um, but, but Alter is like very aware of all of the various translations and they inform him. So in a weird way, I mean, I almost think of his new translation as a kind of like palimpsest of the last hundred years of translations. And then somebody just making like a series of good decisions about which ones to employ. Hmm. Yeah. I, um, just to give the 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 listeners maybe an, an idea, I thought I would give them his Psalm 23 because they're probably familiar um, with that psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows, sure, goodness and love follow all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And Alder had, had, had written, The unacknowledged heresy underlying most modern English versions of the Bible is the use of translation as a vehicle for explaining the Bible instead of representing it in another language. And in the most egregious <laughs> instances, this amounts to explaining away the Bible. And uh, here's uh, – Psalm 23, in Alter's translation. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In grass meadows he makes me lie down, by quiet waters guides me. 
My life he brings back, he leads me on pathways of justice for his name's sake. Though I walk in the veil of death's shadow, I fear no harm, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, it is they that console me. You set out a table before me in the face of my foes. You moisten my head with oil, my cup overflows. Let but goodness and kindness pursue me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for many long days. Um, Beautifully read. And, you know, I mean, maybe one thing we should just say up front is, is uh, I mean, there's this cool thing that, that Alter was publishing. Mm-hmm. He was publishing these books, like, as he was translating, so it took him 20 years. But I think when his psalms came out, like, that was kind of the moment when, when like, the like the lay person started to say, like, holy shit, there's this whole new approach. Yeah. Um to just updating this language and making it feel fresh, right? Yeah, and also not, um, not. I mean, like Christianizing it necessarily, right? So that translation, he's not referring to the soul. He's not referring to everlasting life. Um, it's he's trying to understand what the authors were doing in a literary sense and and putting that on the page as much as possible. He also has a wonderful book on the art of translation. Um, <laughs> where he has many, many snarky things to say about uh, is, other translations. This essay, book in the history of the world. Oh, it's unbelievable. A literary approach to the Bible, despite being uh, about subjects that might not seem to be, um, you know, the most like geared towards sniping attacks on <laughs> academic <laughs> contemporaries, has two to three condescending or contemptuous or at the very least like withering disregard for uh, other translators two to three per page it's really oh quite incredible he it really even, hates this group called, even, uh, called jps who are, the, who are a bunch of jewish scholars who made the sort of like most most secular version that you right read. right actually, i mean a lot of people use it but he man does he not like their virtual language even when he's like when somebody's approaching the Bible in a way that he likes. Like he references Edwin Good, who, who talks about irony in the Old Testament. Right, right, right. right? Um, so, you know, here's somebody who is taking a literary approach to the Bible, but uh, uh, after, you know, he, he states um, uh, what Good is trying to do. Uh, one sympathizes with Good's complaints about the general indifference of his colleagues to literary issues and with the reasonableness of his declared intention uh, merely to make a modest start in the right direction. His book, <laughs> his book succeeds in doing that, but no more than that. <laughs> He's basically like the Thomas Carlyle of, uh, of biblical of biblical withering. Yeah, burns. That, that's right. He, he certainly is the great man of this, and he, you know, you earn some right to that title, I suppose, by translating the Bible by yourself. It'll yeah. it'll go well. A long and look, way. I mean, and, and actually, like two things I was thinking I I wanted to say up front are, um, I mean, first. Like exactly what you just said, Jacob, which is that on some level, I mean, uh, Phil, you really love this this uh, this critic named Amy Hungerford, and she has like a right. great chapter in one, of her, in one of her books where she goes through. I was actually shocked how many people in the mid 20th century sort of like took a literary approach to the Bible, including like Frank Kermode and, and Bloom. And, you know, on some level, he does have a little bit of a I mean, I think the reason why I want to talk about him here is is, is it half because he just has a different claim from having looked at this shit so closely for so long. But also it is a manifesto. Like he is laying down a modern approach to being able to make this right. accessible to people who don't have Hebrew okay. and also potentially don't give a shit. Right? So what would you say – so the manifesto today is a literary approach to the Bible. It is the first chapter of his book, The Art of Biblical Narrative, which is great. And what would you say, Dan, is 
the primary claim that he is making? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the primary claim that he's making is that um, there's a way for us to update the way that we talk about the Bible um, in a way that comports with the way we read. I mean, he literally, in the, in the conclusion of, uh, of our biblical narrative, says, you know, you might not say that this is as complicated as reading Kafka or reading Beckett or reading Joyce, but at the same time, like, maybe you could. <laughs> I mean, I think he wants to say, like, you do kind of need to read the actual language and you need to read the language translated well. And when you do, like, it doesn't actually have to be like a spiritual or theological experience. You can read it with a kind of literary mind. Um, that and, and for me, like, and I don't know if he says this overtly, but that like allows a kind of accessibility and, and modernity that makes it not seem dogmatic. But the interesting thing is that what Alter is saying is that it's not only that the literary reading of the Bible is necessary to fully appreciate its literary subtleties and its uh, the meanings that only emerge from the prosody. I think what he's also saying is that it's necessary to fully appreciate the religious quality of it. Yes. And that the excessively um, didactic approach of some religious scholars, as opposed to the excessively uh, historicizing approach of some modern scholars, that that also misses the quality, the spiritual and, and mysterious quality. And there's a quote, uh, I think, that gets at this, not from the excerpt that we read, but from elsewhere in the book where Alter writes, as one discovers how to adjust the fine focus of those literary binoculars, the biblical tales, forceful enough to begin with, show a surprising subtlety and inventiveness of detail, and in many instances, a beautifully interwoven wholeness. The paradoxical truth may well be that by learning to enjoy the biblical stories more fully as stories, we shall also come to see more clearly what they mean to tell us about God, man, and the perilously momentous realm of history. Yeah. 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 Mm. He also says, mm. I would yeah, prefer... Which like, no. which, like, fully informs my own... And I should maybe at this point say, like, I have an Episcopalian life, and I don't frequently attend shul, but I also, like, think about this stuff a lot. So I feel like I have this, like, I really like people who believe things, but I'm never sure what I believe. And there is a way in which, I mean, I think he he's always contextualizing... Okay, so like all of a sudden in the mid 20th century, we could say like, well, maybe these books weren't all written together. And maybe we can even like break down the parts where some of these these characters are composites or aren't historical figures. But I mean, in a way, I think the analogy for him is he's just like, yeah, but if at the moment where you're like, holy shit, like bodies are made of cells, and then you've been like, so they're not bodies. <laughs> like that was not the conclusion that biologists drew at the beginning of the 20th century, right? right. Like the conclusion yeah. was, okay, so now we know them and their parts, yeah. and we can know even more about them. Right, and and he. He makes this point that, you know, uh, with one of the, the first things that he looks at in this chapter where, you know, so one of the things that modern biblical criticism has done is seen like, okay, like, you know, if you look at a book of the Bible, it seems like, you know, it, different parts were maybe compiled from different sources that there might be, you know, sort of editors who are interjecting things or pasting things together. And he brings up one of those points where – uh, it's in the story of uh, Joseph, right? Yeah. And yeah. there's this uh, narrative that gets inserted, right, that seems like it's kind of drawn from another source or it's a, it's a break in the narrative where, you know, there's kind of like modern biblical criticism that looks at it as this kind of discrete element coming from somewhere else. <clears throat> and 
what he's saying is if you look at this as a literary work, right, and take seriously that there was a a final editor, a final redactor, right, um, who is combining these elements deliberately, uh, or if there's at least the possibility that that's happening, what what occurs when you read this in the context of the broader narrative, and does it seem that there are sort of clear things that the final editor of this uh, you know, book is trying to achieve, and he and he makes, I think, a very pers- persuasive case. So maybe we should just well, go over and there's, like, the and it's like a, it's a yeah. very complicated narrative approach. So this is going to get boring for a second, but just to sort of break down what you brought up, Phil, because this one to me feels like almost maybe the, one of the two most important points in in like his whole over it, which is that. And in fact, let me take a huge step back to say, so like he studied Hebrew and Compilate at Harvard, so he's like. He's like the guy, right? Like he's thinking about, okay, so like what does Hebrew sound like? And also he got those degrees in 1962. So it's like at the moment that modern Hebrew is beginning to exist. So it's actually not like in a, he's not in a vacuum. He's saying, okay, so Hebrew is about to get way more complicated, right? For for 5,000 years, people have only known like 19,000 Hebrew words. And there's about to be like a cognate for, for email at some point. And so like this, part of what I want to say is like this project has to happen, right? Mm-hmm. The project of like modernizing what we think about it. So super briefly, so... So Genesis 37 which is like the story we all know about um, Joseph getting his coat taken and his, and his brothers all pretend to, to Jacob like he's been killed. And then there's just a break. And then and in Genesis 38, all of a sudden there's this like story that seems totally irrelevant about Judah um, and Tamar. And we don't have to get into the details of it, but like then in Genesis 39, he just comes straight back to Joseph. So like it does things like it's, a, it's like the first cliffhanger. Right, it's like building steam so that you'll get back to it. Um, it's the meanwhile back also, at the ranch approach it's also to like storytelling. The first, like, full like juxtaposition because there's like details that you pick out in each of those chapters that match up with each other, and it's a very very modern way to tell story. Right. So in the in the story, instead of lying directly to their father, Joseph's um, brothers hold up like his. Uh, clothing that has been like that they've smeared with blood, and then the father yeah. assumes that he's been killed. Right? Jacob, uh, uh, yeah, right. Jacob sees the blood and reacts as if he's been killed. Right, <clears throat> and then it, there's this story of Judah, right, uh, who has three sons, uh, and his son Ur married a woman named Tamar, right, and then. Ur, Judah's firstborn, displeased God, and God took his life. And then there's the story of Onan. Um, Which is where we get masturbation from. Yes, patron saint of the internet. Um, also also modern. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> Onan is supposed to then get his brother's widow pregnant, but instead he spills his seed on the ground. Uh, and so, so – the, And that, that's important because as Alter points out, so the, the larger – structure of this is he's taking this story of Joseph and the stories around Joseph with Tamar and Jacob and Judah and Onan and Alter is showing the way that the full meaning of those stories only emerges from their linguistic interconnectedness, that there are these refrains that are uh, repeated and that create these complexities, uh, layers of meaning that cannot be appreciated absent a literary reading that's attentive to, for instance, the repetition of a phrase. 
But the meaning that he's talking about, which also only emerges from this, the kind of, uh, if there is a larger, let's say, sort of didactic element that threads through these stories in particular, it has to do with this idea of who's got the uh, inheritance of the father, which runs through, obviously, the the whole Bible. I mean, the, the Torah, first half in, in particular, is continually returning to this theme of fathers and sons and inheritances and, um, and how, how this, how these familial relations are worked out. And it does it in a storytelling mode, not in a purely didactic, uh, not in a, a, uh, a mode that is purely literal or literally instructive. The, the lessons such as they are, only exist as stories. Well, okay. and also just like, I mean, yes, that's exactly, that's super well put. And it also is, I mean, like everything you just said, if you were to just decontextualize it and use that to describe like the advent of modernism would hold. Right? Like it's exactly right. the way we would talk about like Chekhov's The Duel or the way that we would talk about like, you know, Faulkner overlapping characters in a way that you have to read them against each other. There is a way in which it wants to say like, Everything old is new again, but like this is a pretty modern mode of storytelling that you probably wouldn't expect you'd find in like the middle of Genesis, right? Right, and he and he points out that this is a this is a modern conceit, right? That like you know we think this would only happen in like Virginia Woolf or or whatever, right. but he says it's only by imposing a naive and unexamined aesthetic of our of. Uh, of our own that modern scholars are able to declare so confidently that certain parts of the ancient text could not belong with others, right? That like, you know, he's seeing these things that seem strange, that seems like odd interjections, and the, you know, some modern scholars are just thinking it's kind of like, you know, they just threw a bunch of things in a text together, and then he's right, tracking right, right. these what seem like very obvious, deliberate parallels um, and saying, no, this is this is a literary this is a literary device they are using sophisticated literary tools um and to sort of go back to the tamar story basically what happens is um uh judah has another son who's not yet of age and theoretically this other son is going to then supposed to go with tamar but maybe you know for for whatever reason uh, Judah doesn't want to do that. <laughs> Maybe he's worried another son's going to die. Uh, she doesn't have a good track record with his children. And um, he sends her away. And then when his son comes of age, he still doesn't send him to Tamar. So she's just sort of stuck, right? And up until this point, she's been utterly passive, has been a passive object in the story, he says, acted upon. But then um, she... Uh, Gets up, like drapes around her face a shawl, uh, and sits on the uh, uh, like on the side of the road and waits for Judah, who thinks that she's a prostitute. He lays with her. Um, she extracts like a pledge from him uh, of his seal and cord, right? Which uh, Alter says is kind of the equivalent of asking for all his major credit cards, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And then she says, like, you know, I'll give them back to you when you give me a kid. Uh, uh, as way of payment, and then he sends his man up uh, to ask for you know the prostitute. Though he says like the um, the cult prostitute is being sort of um, uh, a little bit more respectful. Uh, they say you know there is no cult prostitute. It turns out that Tamar is pregnant. He thinks that you know uh, uh, so 
About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot, and what is more, she is with child by harlotry. And Judah said, take her out and let her be burned, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And Alter makes the point that sort of the brutality of Judah's response in Hebrew is even stronger because it's like just two words. Um, And then, of course, as they take her out, she says, you know, it's the person, this this stealing cord is the person whose child it is. It turns out to be Judah. He's... um, uh, and she says, please recognize, and the word is hakerna, to whom these belong, the seal and cord and staff. Judah recognized them and said, she is more in the right than I, for I did not give her to my son Sela, and he had no carnal knowledge of her again. And uh, Alter tracks the repetition of particular um, verbs, that uh, verb uh, recognize uh, with the, you know, sort of showing the kid's blood drenched cloak uh, go uh, at, uh, to Jacob to s- suggest that uh, you know, Joseph had, had been killed and then showing Judah's seal and cord and that these both occur at the peak of the narrative when sort of in one case there's a deception and in another case a sort of unveiling and that these are clearly seemed designed to be operating in parallel. And, and the then verb itself. The right? verb is repeated. Yeah. And then that verb comes back later with another story, not of sort of inappropriate sexuality, but this time with Joseph refraining from inappropriate sexuality and then the recognition when he meets his brothers again. And to alter and also right. and also just like in terms of like learning about that, it's also I mean it's like basically like a new critical close reading at a moment when new criticism right. was like the deal. Right? Like he's using yeah. all the modern tools to give an ancient reading. Well, modern tools that though he points out that in the midrash, right? Uh, midrash just means the the commentary on the Torah. Right. So this these these things were noted more than fifteen hundred years ago in the in the midrash. Right. You deceived your uh-huh. father with a kid by your life. Tamar will deceive you with a kid. Right. Uh, and he says this instance may suggest that in many cases a literary student of the Bible has more to learn from traditional commentaries than from modern scholarship. Um, so this is where it gets, I think, especially fascinating. The, the whole structure of Jewish learning is organized around. Um, you know, historically, you could say this dates to the destruction of the temple, but the post-temple exilic uh, Jewish existence certainly is organized around uh, the system of textual commentary in large part. Of course, there's also the law and the communal aspects of Judaism, but the the reading of the Torah is not done in isolation not only in the sense that you don't read the Torah by yourself, but you don't read the Torah alone. Like the the book – so there, there are two versions of the Torah. There is what's called the Sefer Torah, which is the scroll, you know, that you, you kind of know from the famous image of uh, the, the scrolls with the, the cursive handwriting that goes in the ark and that's the sacred object. But that's – that's the sacred object Torah, which has its own rules. Then there's the Torah you study, which is called the Chumash, which is like the Codex, which is the printed version. And the format in which that is found classically going back a millennium is with commentary written into it. So the text is surrounded by the commentary, leaving aside the Talmud, which is commentary on top of commentary, 
well, about the law. I was going to say, yeah. like, if you actually, like, were to, like, talk to, like, uh, most of the Hasidic sects that you'd find, like, if you went down to Crown Heights to the northern side of Eastern Parkway, like, they're actually spending most of their time with Talmud, in which case they're actually, like, four layers deep beyond that. And Zohar which, and, and, and uh, many other texts yeah. beside. But even yeah. when they I, – I know the Hasidic Humash, and I've, you know, I'm familiar with it, and it yeah. has Rashi's commentary – Right. On the page, so you are re- Rashi being the most the acronym of the French rabbi, eleventh century Fr- French rabbi, probably the most famous Torah scholar commentator who ever lived. And Rashi, the great rabbi's commentary is on the page. So I, I bring this up to say that the even the classical uh, traditional rabbinic view of the texts is not as some an object so sacred it can't be engaged with. It's that the engagement comes, uh, A, with a different set of tools, and then B, with a different set of uh, kind of referential guides. And Alter is saying that there are meanings that you can derive only from the more traditional Rabbinic yeah, yeah, readings yeah. that apply and in fact, to yes. the literary so, and that reading. seems like super key. And if you like, bear with me for one second because it's going to sound a tiny off topic, but it's like super on topic. Um, so, like, I've been reading about this this 17th century false uh, messiah named Shabtai Tzvi. So, I've been reading with a with a uh, rabbi friend who considers himself a neo hasid at, at this kind of like uh, 18th century uh, Hasidic rabbi named Reb Nachman and. And it's crazy because I'll sit down and read with him, and it's like you know I don't know about you guys, but when I'm when I'm researching for a novel, like I'm reading an enormous amount of texts, and some of them very fast. You know, like I'm trying to get through Gershom Sholem's book on Shabbat that's like a thousand pages long, and then when I get together with my buddy Josh, and he's like, "Well, let's read these like three sentences really closely right. for like three hours," and it is. It's like a really beautiful and really intense and really spiritual. Experience. I know exactly like what you're describing, me, but but I actually do think weirdly, Alter's doing a tiny bit of a different thing. So, like to step back from what Phil was saying just before we lose the thread of this this moment in Genesis. So Genesis 36, which is the chapter that precedes the other ones, is just one of those chapters that like we all know where it's just like. And whoever begat whoever, and they begat whoever. So just like read a couple lines. You know, these are the sons of Seir, the Horite, who had settled in the land. Lotan and Shobal and Zabea and Anna and Dishon and Dezer and Dishon. So it's like just paragraphs of names like that. And actually, like, I think it's tacit in what Alter's saying is that, like, so it's like we get the huge broad view. Here's all the names of these people. And then and then the next chapter is like, okay, let's pick out the people who are most important in that. We're going to tell the story of Joseph and Jacob. And actually, like, to, like, go into that fractal even further, let's take a second to talk about Judah and Tamar and then come back out. And I would just say, like, for me, I'm thinking about it as a novelist. Like that sounds a lot more like the beginning of Dickens' Bleak House right. or the beginning of like Anna Karenina to go from like all happy families and then into a family. Like it's actually it's like a super modern move, even in Genesis, to make chapter to chapter. And one of the things, and this goes with that discussion of like commentaries upon commentaries. That you know, it, so he says, you know, one of the things that that the this technique has, and and that embedding your message such as it is through stories is it produces a certain indeterminacy of meaning, of meaning, especially in regard to motive, 
moral character, and psychology. Meaning, perhaps for the first time in narrative literature, was conceived as a process requiring continual revision, both in the ordinary <clears> sense and the etymological sense of seeing again, continual suspension of judgment, weighing of multiple possibilities, brooding over gaps in the information provided. And that meaning conceived of a, of a process, you know, it's very at odds with a sort of like uh, foundational enlightenment era, like one set truth. I remember uh, reading, see, it's even a way that sometimes school children are taught to read fiction. You know, I remember as a, I had a this wonderful teacher, uh, John Connolly, uh, who was a history teacher, but he had this after school group where we would read literature related to religion, and then we'd also work at a, um, uh, a hospice for uh, people with AIDS in the village. And we were reading a Flannery O'Connor story, Circle in the Fire, and we're all like, you know, freshmen. And we're discussing it, and we're trying to, like, pick out the theme, you know? Like, the, the, like, one sentence that will tell you what this story is about. And at a certain point, uh, Mr. Connolly just said, okay, guys, stop. (laughs) This story was an experience. Reading this was an experience. What was that experience like for you? Right? And that is, seems much more, you know, that sort of approach to... Something is is radically different from this sort of like, let me work out the kind of didactic meaning of this text that I can sort of reduce to one thing. And I I think of a line from uh, uh, Isaiah Berlin has a lecture on Hamun, one of the the critics of the Enlightenment. Uh, And he he says, um, God is a poet, not a mathematician. Only spiders like Spinoza make systems that shut out the real world. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> Speaking of damning burns, major minds. And that's it. Like God, this is a God. Like, like right. too mm-hmm. philosophically based. Um, I mean, from what Jacob, what you're saying about about Rashi. I mean, in some ways, the next major figure, potentially most like influential figure, is when we get to Maimonides. And one of the big projects of Maimonides is to sort of move away from a Neoplatonism that I think people also were really worried was creeping into Kabbalah. And I'm not sure they would use these terms of moving into something much more Aristotelian, which is what you're describing, right? It's like within a system, you can make meaning. But you're not just saying like, well, there's a form on a wall somewhere that the meaning exists and you're going to grab after it. And I do think that like the last 1,500 years of Torah reading, right. the dominant moods have tended to be kind of anti-Platonist in that way. Well, so or at least anti-Neoplatonist. <laughs> Where there, it's funny, so you mentioned that where there's a system of <laughs> that where you can sort of construct things inside of it, but it might not be the the total meaning. There's this famous story from the Talmud uh, with uh, where there's a dispute between rabbi, rabbis, and there's Rabbi Eliezer, and then a bunch of others, and it's a sort of obscure point of whether an oven is clean or not, right? And Rabbi Eliezer gets frustrated because it's just him against everybody else. Uh, on that day, Rabbi Eliezer brought forward every possible argument, but they did not accept them from him. Said he to them, If the halakha, uh, halakha agrees with me, let this carob tree prove it. Thereupon the carob tree was torn a hundred cubits out of its place. No proof can be brought from a carob tree, they retorted. And so the tree goes back to where it was, right? <laughs> and then he goes, if the Halakha agrees with me, let the stream of water prove it. And the stream starts flowing backwards. And they're like, no proof can be brought from a tree, stream of water. So it returns to the proper direction. <laughs> and again, he says, if the Halakha agrees with me, let the walls of the study hall prove it, whereupon the walls incline to fall. But Rabbi Yehoshua Ye- 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 rebuked them, saying, when scholars defeat each other in law, what is it for you? 
Hence, the walls did not fall in honor of Rabbi Yeshua, nor did they stand again in honor of Rabbi Eliezer, and they inclined uh, in standing. And again, he said to them, if the Holocaust <laughs> agrees with me, let it be proven from heaven. Whereupon a heavenly voice cried out, what is it for you with Rabbi Eliezer, seeing that every in every place the Holocaust agrees with him? But Rabbi Yehoshua stood up on his feet and exclaimed, it is not in heaven, right? Quoting Deuteronomy. What did he mean by this? Uh, said another rabbi, that the Torah had already been given at Mount Sinai. So we pay no attention to a heavenly voice because thou hast long since written in the Torah, after the majority must one incline, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so he loses <laughs> even after all these signs. And then another rabbi Very meets Elijah. Halakha right? means, just means the law. Yeah. So yeah. another rabbi meets Elijah and he asks him, what did the Holy One, blessed be he, do in that hour? And, and Elijah, uh, you know, when, when they defeat Rabbi Eliezer, and Elijah responds, he laughed and smiled. He replied saying, my children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. <laughs> this is, uh, this is actually relates back very directly because, you know, in, in two ways. W- what is this story? Part of what Alter is doing is, I think, challenging both the, uh, sort of traditional idea of what the stories in the Bible are challenging the idea that they are as a, you know, the, the faithful would believe that they are directly delivered from God and that they represent the literal truth. But he's also challenging the idea that and that they represent clear didactic messages, which don't contradict with one another, which you have to do such violence to the Bible in order to do that. But they, the incredible thing is that they, how often they synthesize because you would expect them given the number of authors involved in the project of of writing the Bible, you would expect the, that it to be utterly cacophonous, Mm -hmm. but he's saying that both that they are not, um, the literal truth that the, the faithful might believe, nor are they merely these kind of formal historical artifacts. They're stories that are, generative of these layers upon layers of meaning in which, you know, in the, in the kind of formal sense, their various authors are quoting each other and building these replicating and multiplying layers and complexities. And then a final redactor is, you know, harmonizing those. So there's this, these, emergent properties of meaning that are the kind of literary form and that within that meaning is something that is both contained within the the prosody and the language itself and that emerges as a final property. So in other words, if there's a verb that's repeated, the meaning – so in this case, a lot of what these stories are about, Joseph – uh, Judah, Jacob, Tamar is challenging the law of primogeniture, which is what, you know, the, mm-hmm. uh, the kind of early Judaism is challenging the idea that the firstborn son is entitled to everything. And this is something that runs through both uh, the Torah and, and through stories in the Midrash and the Talmud. Fathers are always getting humiliated. Firstborn sons are getting denied their rights. This is this kind of refrain. So that's one level of what you could call meaning, the kind of social meaning, this, this new moral law emerging. But just the repetition of the verb is another kind of meaning, an experiential <laughs> meaning. You hear the repetition of the verb, 
you don't have to consciously appreciate that other story. The repetition of the verb is sufficient to generate a kind of narrative meaning, a lyrical meaning all by itself. This is how poetry works, right? Like the sound, the language is generative of an experience that is more than just a physical experience, harmonizes in some way with your sense of life. And that is in itself meaning. Right. And Alter is finding... It's an overflow of meaning. An overflow of yeah. meaning that, that can't be reduced to any, it can't be reduced purely to the historical dimension, to the prosody, to the moral well, law. And it definitely also like restores, uh, like I don't know how much either of you guys spend time in churches or synagogues when you were a kid, but like my experience of being nine or ten and being and listening to like a certain amount of Hebrew that I didn't really understand necessarily like that incantatory experience, that musical experience. Um, like that was the experience, right? Yeah. Like even if you knew some of the Hebrew, like that still was what you were hearing when you the, were the, the hearing it in, in, in Latin or in Hebrew, right? The aesthetic experience of, of some sort of high points of like a mass or actually in the case of <laughs> me yesterday, <laughs> the aesthetic experience of my toddler escaping from the aisle um and then when I motioned to him to come back, he sprinted to the front of the church right as the priest is saying, do this in memory of me, and then sprints in front of the altar in front of the entire <laughs> oh, <no>. congregation. <laughs> so I have to chase after him, grab him, and then bring him back as the bells rung. Um, but, uh, you know. That is amazing. God, so you know what, that, God, God, God's a father, too, yeah, so he understands. Right, right, right. He gets it. <laughs> We're all on the same boat here. It's also, it's also like kind of a transition into the thing that I want to say next, which is, like, I think I did spend most of my 20s and 30s being, like, oh, no, there's a, a didactic, like, book in a didactic place where people might make me think a thing I don't think. Right. And, like, I think I think there's, like, tacit and altered project to be, right. like, listen, like – for people like you, like that's actually not even like the dominant mode by which to read this book. And right. like the one of the like well, that this book is that is, brought me back to this yeah. point was uh, I I um I host through a literary reading series at the college where I teach and and in one year I had Jim Lahiri and Ha Jin here and discovered from both of them separately that when they were at BU they had taken a class with Aharon Applefeld who for his workshop they all they read were stories from Genesis. Oh, that's awesome. And he just like, like wholly separate from this conversation, like our and I would just come in and just be like, all right, like let's read this Joseph story and then think about its narrative properties and how it's going to affect you. And like the way in which it affected like to, you know, a deprogrammed former Chinese communist and, um, you know, this first generation Indian American woman, like there is a way in which like seeing how clearly that could become like a very modern and even like postmodern move mm -hmm. helped draw me back in. I got to say that, um, my boss at Tablet and a writer I have great respect for, David Samuels, did, I believe, the last Applefeld interview, which is at Tablet, on uh, the side of Tablet, and, and is incredible. Really? Yeah, I think it was the last uh, the last interview uh, before Applefeld died is the one David huh. did. Um, yeah, I love that guy's work. He had, yeah, the, he, had the best, he had the best piece about marijuana ever in, in the work. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So... I think like in the structure of this thing, a, a literary approach to the Bible, he spends the first half of that, uh, Phil more or less laid it out, sort of finding the essentially 
proving the literary quality of the Bible by showing the ways these stories build on each other's uh, language, etc. But then and, at about and, the halfway and, and, point – And that like this is not like some sort of loosey-goosey thing, right? He makes the point that when you're yeah. being very precise um, and careful in your in, – in looking at how the narrative works – that it's actually a good deal. He says it's actually a good deal less conjectural than the historical right. scholarship that asks of a verse whether it contains possible Akkadian loan words. Right, right, right. That <laughs> um, you know, just because it's focused on aesthetics, that does not mean it is an open field. That doesn't mean it's not precise and rigorous. Um, mm. And and also that it is a, a critical component to understanding this thing, not just in terms of how it works internally, but also if you're approaching it from a religious dimension. Yeah, yeah. So and. At the same time, it accomplishes what his approach accomplishes what Dan was talking about, which is this restoration of a quality of awe-inspiring mystery um, to these texts, which in their natural state are awe-inspiring and mysterious, even if they're not always that at every moment. They are that often enough that it's you can't miss that if you're not – overly concerned with um, not being told to believe something. So he makes this point at about the halfway uh, of this chapter in a literary approach to the Bible that I think sort of boils this down. And what he says is there are two essential distinctions between the way the text is treated in the Midrash and the literary approach I'm proposing. First, Although the Midrashists did assume the unity of the text, they had little sense of it as a real narrative continuum, as a coherent unfolding story in which the meaning of earlier data is progressively, even systematically revealed or enriched by the addition of subsequent data. And then the second respect in which Midrashic approach to the biblical narratives does not really recognize their literary integrity is is the didactic insistence of Midrashic interpretation. So basically that the Midrashists, although they recognize in a way the modernists don't, some of the kind of awe-inspiring mystery and some of the the subtleties that the modernists miss, they don't see the kind of uh, literary synchronicities. um, and, And that's, you know, to be expected in terms of what their frame of reference is. But, what he says uh, about what his approach produces that theirs perhaps misses both the midrashists in the in the religious tradition and the overly sterile and formal modernists, what their approach misses is what he calls a certain indeterminacy of meaning, especially in regard to motive, moral character, and psychology. And I think that one of the easiest ways for me to see that indeterminacy of meaning is in the absence of the word because and its yeah. replacement by the word and. Mm-hmm. They're both conjunctions, right? Yeah. Except there's – Yes, and in fact, like – so, okay, so there's like two – there's two things like in the midst of this that I want to kind of bring in from the other 200 pages like to help in the conversation. And, and that is one of them, which is that – um and it's going to sound nerdy, but it gets super interesting really quickly. But he talks about how this idea of parataxis is like the major mode of the Bible. Spell and, that and out for us. just means and, and, and. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thoughts. And, and I'll say like, I, I both like had the memory of like being 20 
and not realizing I was writing that way and having it rooted out of me in a workshop in a way that I now feel angry about. But also, <laughs> but also like, I mean, you know, it's like, I feel like when I read Faulkner or like I read this great novel by, um, by Lydia Kiesling that came out last year and like, she does a lot of that sort of like, you can put a period in, but the end moves you forward. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, I actually am interested to know what you two think about it because I had this combination of like, oh, that feels like super modern and like lively to me. But well, what do you like, think the shit, and does, like the- <laughs> Dan? What did you regret losing? What did you have that um, you regretted losing? Like, what did you lose when the the workshop uh, sort of shamed <laughs> and shamed you? <laughs> well, I think it's. I mean, I think it's exactly what Alter is is pointing out in what we lose when we get like the JPS version, which is that um, it's an interest in concision, Hemingway-esque concision and, um, and like efficiency over cadence and rhythm. Right. I mean, and, and, and I do think that like, you know, in the next page from where you were just quoting Jacob, like he says, when he talks, when he, he literally says, when I talk about literary analysis, what I mean are artful use of language, shifting play of ideas, conventions, tone, sound, imagery, syntax, narrative viewpoint and much else and the much else that he gets into in both the books we're talking about took for like long periods are rhythm and rhythm and cadence and so much is produced by that by that and so that's the prosody he gives gives a a very quick example where there's meaning in an and right so um he makes a big deal the fact that jacob when he thinks that his son has been killed right uh has this very sort of ostentatious mourning, right? Right, right? And and then of course we know that he's alive. And then there's a uh, it's the extravagance is the extravagance of Jacob's mourning is pointed up by the verse that immediately follows and concludes the episode. And the Midianites sold him in Egypt, right, to Potiphar. Modern translations usually re- render the initial vav of this verse with something like meanwhile. But that loses the artful ambiguity of the Bible's paratexis. In this cunningly additive syntax on the same unbroken narrative continuum in which Jacob is mourning his supposedly devoured son, Midianites are selling the living lad. So he translates it, and his father bewailed him, and the Midianites sold him. For even Mm -hmm. the sentence break would not have been evident in the ancient text. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, At another point here, he talks about uh, he's like – beautiful alter version of a compliment where he's like (laughs) saying you're not a complete moron. Uh, He's talking about this guy who I'd never heard of before. I'm intrigued. Uh, Eric Auerbach, I guess Mm -hmm. he's a, I think he was a German academic. He wrote a book on mimesis and that compares the Odyssey and the Bible. And um, alter says of him, Auerbach must be credited. So, you know, it's like he must, you know, <laughs> just despite his evident unworthiness, he must be credited. Auerbach must be credited with showing more clearly than anyone before him how the cryptic conciseness of biblical narrative is a reflection of profound art, not primitiveness. I love that phrase, mm-hmm. cryptic conciseness. I think the other thing that the end does, in addition to, um, or, or building on what, what you two just mentioned is that it, it sort of, it doesn't deny or contradict the causal relationship between events. It just blurs it into a kind, like you can't apprehend the direct causal relationship. This is God's world. It's not, you're not mm-hmm. supposed to understand mm-hmm. in a minute clockwork sense 
why every single isolated action leads to every other single isolated action. It's not if, because, then, it's and. It's these are the things that are happening in a realm outside of your control where the meaning peeks through the mystery or it bursts through in flame the mystery at certain points but is just as often concealed in what is otherwise the ineffable, majestic, but totally terrifying mysteriousness of existence. And, and, and also what it does is in, in the sort of that not giving the causes, right, the, 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 the concision, mm-hmm. it, it forces you to supply the psychology in some way, right? So like, you know, if you think of um, – you know, Kierkegaard retells, you know, the story of Abraham and Isaac, you know, four different ways. Um, Bob Dylan also did a pretty good retelling of Abraham and Isaac. <laughs> oh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but uh, next time you see me coming, you better run. It's like sort of, you know, each different version is this sort of rich, intense attempt to grapple with this sort of foundational mystery. And in a way, there's something almost like, you know, if you think of a story like Akutagawa's In a Grove, right, which uh, Roshiman is based on, like, it's like these flat narrative accounts where in the ways that they sort of butt up against each other, it forces the reader to try and sort of pull these details out and you you have to grapple with it. I think in somewhere in here, he points at um, – uh, the sort of most enduring meaning of the word Israel is he who struggles with God, right? That's what it comes, the wrestling yeah. uh, with the angel. And that this, mm-hmm. yeah, that this, these, these texts are a history of a people struggling with the divine through history and the God of history. And that that is. But psychology is not the principal yes. arena of that struggle, right, 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 nor right. is it the principal lens. And so it does. It both provides us with a richer psychological reading as modern readers when we go back and the psychology isn't there. We both get a richer psychological meaning and I think fascinatingly and both in a way that sort of contradicts the psychology and adds to it, we also get another mode of existence. So the psychology is richer and at the same time, we're restored to a, a way of living or a, a way of a mode of experience that doesn't perceive our own consciousness as the uh, uh, the kind of principal agent for interacting with right. the world around us. We, the world we are, is alive. We are, we are, we are two, physically two really quick yeah. things to jump in on that because they seem like they're important just to get some like last terms out on the table for the rest of the conversation. And one is, I mean, I think it is a move away from like this. You know, there's a very famous Ian Forster sort of like mid-modern uh, claim in, in aspects of the novel of the, you know, um, the causation of what makes narrative. So the king died and the queen died is not a story, but the king died and the queen died of grief is. And in a way, like what 
I think what the Bible often wants to say is like, no, it's like more like Aristotle's eudaimonia, where it's just like, well, how do we know what we're doing is good for us down the road, right? How do we know Sarah's laughter when she's 90 might lead to laughter um, that will disturb God when she actually gives birth, right? Right. And and just really quickly to to get through this, just in case it's useful, because you brought up the Eric Eric Auerbach stuff, I mean, um, the uh, the Mimesis stuff. So like for me, the most interesting distinction in the whole book that that, – that Alter makes is he talks about how, and you know, I think he's careful not to get really deep into like a Matthew Arnold Hebraism versus Hellenism, but he says the difference between the Greek myths and the Bible is that the Greek myths always function as metaphor, and the Bible always functions as metonym. So ah, the metaphor that, perfect. of Zeus yeah. is always like, you know, God can rain down fire in your head, and that's and that's probably not great for you, and it'll probably also have sex with your mother when she's a uh, when he turns into a savannah animal. But then, like, you know, if you say Adam, it just means Adam. It just means the man. And so it's always meant to be just this complicated way of saying, like, well, here's just an example of what we all are. And then that somehow becomes more – it's much harder to lend, like, causality or meaning right. to that in a, in a simple Is way. Is that an actual altar phrase that it's metonym, not metaphor? Or is that you, Dan? Yeah. yeah. Well, he, he takes it from – it's interesting. He takes it from this other, like, literary uh, – uh, this other like this other scholar who, has, who who's like moved in in the same space with him, who I can find his name is not anybody I've ever heard of. His okay. last name is Shindao, but he he basically says this guy Shindao, and that's interesting because what he says is this: he says uh, he says the Bible engages in a deliberate avoidance of epic, and the prose form of Hebrew narrative is the chief evidence of this avoidance. So what he says is basically like the way the like if you even I mean the best example and the easiest example to conceive of is just the is just the uh, you know, Adam, Adam. I mean, it just means a man. So he says, Shindos used metonymy, the linking of things through mere contact rather than through likeness, as in metaphor, with its point-to-point movement suggesting the prosaic modes of narrative and history as the key to the literature of the Bible. Right. Yeah, so he's kind of taking yeah. this other this other theorist and saying, you know, that difference allows us to have at least what we for better or for worse, it's what we view as as a more modern view of the man. And also, you know, one of the things is like that this is not an arena for, well, for the working out of Spinoza's mathematical proofs, right? That like it is <laughs> it is about like spider. physical bodies operating in history, right? Like not sort of you know not and those bodies are not simply like vessels for minds contemplating the logos right like we're operative in history history is critical and it is you know these are sort of individual characters grappling with contingency and historical circumstance in their own way and that is interacting with the divine as well um well I, and also just super quickly again yeah. it's like useful for thinking about like the modern applications so, like, the, you know, the mimesis has a tendency to do this sort of, like, there are six types, and we can read those types through Greek literature. Or it's like, but it, like, lands in this almost like Steve Bannon, like, you know, repeating history. History is circle space right. that, like, I tend to think is, like, a very, very dangerous way of thinking about history. And I think it's, like, very un... It's a very un-Jewish, very un-Christian yeah. way of looking at the world. Right. It's a pagan way. Yeah. Cyclical it history. Is straight, is it is literally a straight. It's like a explicitly pagan, like the pagan color, right. and yeah. a really bad acne way of looking at the world. Well, should we move on to um, the Book of Jonah? I think we could talk we about this for a while. Yeah, Dan, do you want to before we get into 
um, the particulars and the alter translation. Do you want to summarize the story of Jonah for us? I do. And I got to tell you, I, I somehow in, in my, uh, in the years since I purchased the altar, I've lost altar's translation of the prophets. So you guys are going to have to give the uh, translation and I can give you the, uh, the HarperCollins Study Bible version. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. we've got. Brief, what's we've exciting got. about Jonah, and like most people know Jonah and the whale, but I think what's what's so sort of like modern and exciting about Jonah, in addition to it being very short, it's like a it's like a two thousand word short story that contains both poetry and prose and dialogue. Um, but basically, uh, Jonah runs away from God. God says, "You got to come to Nineveh because things are going bad there." And, uh, and Jonah immediately gets on a ship and <laughs> sails in the other direction. Which he, is, he goes to, literally to, to exactly Tarshish, which is like it's, called. it's like the ancient uh, equivalent of and like. Then while he's on the ship, uh, like the you know the sea starts going crazy because God doesn't want him going in that direction. And the, and the sailors are like, "Hey, Jonah, like what's going on?" And Jonah's like, "I'm gonna go under decks and go to sleep." <laughs> so like as they're about to die from the waves, he literally just goes down and tries to take a nap, and then he comes back up and he's like, "Fuck, okay, it's me." Supposed to go to Nineveh, and I didn't go there. Uh, so they do what they're supposed to do, which is that they uh, they dump him overboard. Uh, and then you know things go, get better. He like goes to Nineveh. He gets angry, and uh, by the end he is what is known as well, reproved. Something happens between him getting dumped overboard and going to Nineveh. Though. <laughs> oh, sorry, I was trying to align the. That's okay. Which is that he gets eaten by a whale. Yeah, there right. you go. Okay. <laughs> Apparently, at one point, he's Mickey Mouse in there, which is weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, and yeah, he gets he gets spit back up on land, and he's like, "Okay, shit, I guess we're going to Nineveh." Uh, so it's like a very, it's a very sort of like, uh, I mean, it's it's super Gogol's the overcoat, uh, Melville's Bartleby the Scrivener version of he is not like an angry preaching uh, prophet. He's well, so a prophet as, as reluctant as you could possibly there's, be. There's a John Miles. Uh, reading of of Jonah as parody, which sometimes goes overboard, but it's pretty good. And he he talks about how, you know, Jonah has these sort of familiar, there's these familiar elements to prophecy, uh, to like the prophet's journey, but they're all kind of turned on their head. So like, you know, the first of these is like the call to prophecy, you know, and sort of like, you know, you got like in Amos, the lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophecy, right? And then, uh, you know, normally, you know, God speaks and there's something, you know, the prophet is usually reluctant, but is eloquent about his reluctance. He's unworthy, whatever. Uh, Miles writes, Jonah is surely one of the most reluctant heroes in literature, but the parodic quality of his flight from Yahweh depends even more on his phlegmatic, phlegmatic silence. The prophetic scenario calls for reluctance to be sure, but it also calls on the prophet to express, express this reluctance in anguished eloquence. Jonah's silence has the parodic impact of silence after the question, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded, wedded wife? And then, of course, he goes on <laughs> and he pays for his passage to Tarshish, and that, that's sort of like the ancient equivalent of like, you know, Garfield mailing Odie to Timbuktu. It's like as far away as you could get. And he writes, By presenting a prophet who actually buys out of his vocation, the author drains the last trace of numinosity from this most numinous genre in the Bible. Moses could hardly have been more mundane than uh, than Jonah had he thrown water on the burning bush or pawned the miraculous staff to escape confrontation with Pharaoh. All right. And then there's the the miracle of the Lord. You know, uh, in this case, it's, it's the storm that rises up. And Jonah, as you mentioned, he just goes to sleep. Uh, which is the best. Which is yeah. literally yeah. the best. Phenomenal. <laughs> it's so great. It's amazing. Uh, uh, and then, you know, the Psalm of Thanksgiving, which he gives from the belly of the whale. Then there's the rejection of the prophet by the king. So you're supposed to go to the king, and he's supposed to 
reject you. You know, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Um, the, but in this case, like the prophet is neither eloquent nor impassioned, but jejune to the point of banality, right? So Jonah speaks only one sentence, addressing it to no one in particular, not mentioning the crimes of the king or the city, not describing the imminent punishment, and in fact, not issuing an imperative of any sort at all, right? And that, and then the king, just because of this tiny stimulus, has everybody don sackcloth, including the animals, have to fast and don sackcloth um, in the kingdom. And uh, Miles writes, evidently Yahweh enjoyed this spectacle. At any rate, he canceled the scheduled destruction of Nineveh, making Jonah the most successful, if not the only successful, prophet in history. All prophets aimed at averting disaster by warning of it. Only Jonah's warning was fully heeded. Only Nineveh's destruction was averted. Some of that is is very fine, but yeah. it, it goes a bit too far. It does, it does, And yeah. in going too far, it misses something important, which is that the story doesn't end. Jonah doesn't end with... Yeah. The the saving yes. of Nineveh. The story ends with the chastisement of Jonah because right. Jonah, having gone to Nineveh finally after first trying to flee God's command, is disappointed that having issued the warning to the Ninevehans um, that they heed him and that right. they repent and are saved. Well, because they hated like the Assyrians were hated. They were a hated people. So this yeah. is this is the altar interpretation that right. the reason why Jonah is disappointed is because the Ninoans were uh, the enemies of the Israelites and therefore he didn't want to see his enemies saved. The mm-hmm. there there are different sort of more classical Jewish interpretations, but uh, rabbinic interpretations. But in any event, clearly he's disappointed. And then the end of the story is, uh, you know, to make it very short. God provides him with a tree. He goes to sit under the tree, which provides him with this beautiful shade. And, and he's enjoying the, the shade and the fruit of the tree. And then God sends a worm up from the ground, which poisons the tree, essentially, and the tree dies. And then Jonah is mourning the tree. And God says, are you mourning this tree? And Jonah says, yes, I'm mourning this tree. And God says, well, how could I not mourn the Ninoans then uh, who – were a whole people who I created, you know, you're mourning a tree. It's just a tree, but you expect me to kind of ruthlessly, callously right. uh, kill all these well, Ninoans. The, the specific, this is the end of the book. And I, shall I not have pity for Nineveh, the great city, in which there are many more than 120,000 human beings who do not know between their right hand and their left, and many beasts? Yeah. <laughs> and many beasts. Is well, well the and many beasts yeah, is yeah, not I mean, trivial. No, no, think- yeah. So, so I've been thinking about this one, uh, and again, you know, we, we all have our little, like, bugbears, and because I've been trying to create this false prophet and, and put a lot of words in his mouth, I've just been reading the prophets a lot. And in fact, I had this, like, really good experience of reading the Hebrew prophets into the Gospels, into um, into the Quran, which felt like very much of a piece to read mm. it all that way. That's um, ambitious. But, like, for me, the sort of, like, key moment, like, I think we think of Job as being sort of the most modern um like questioning of faith but actually like this is the cool, I was narrative, this up to the cool narrative thing and if like we stick with the with the altar like this is like a artful thing that's happened is like after he's asleep in book one and he wakes up the, uh the sailors are like like why why is this happening and he says i'm a hebrew i worship the lord the god of heaven who made the sea and dry land and so in some ways like the like rather than trying to salvage a world dying in a flood or a world that where, where people have like been immoral. It's actually like a, it's a personal imperative. He is forced to choose 
not to be going to Tarshish, but to be going to Nineveh. And so it puts him in that very modern. It makes me think of like, there's that great Philip Roth line where he's like, all of my characters are busy at the act of choosing. Mm. Like Job actually, Job doesn't quite have that level of, of choice, but, but Jonah has that choice throughout, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and, and it's, and he makes it clear that like he knows that God is, um, is merciful. And that's part, that's part right, of, right. you know, <laughs> he sort of, he knows that this is going to happen. Um, and, uh, he's, I beseech, after, you know, God has decided to save things, I beseech you, Lord, was it not my word when I was still in my land? Therefore did I hasten to flee to Tarshish? For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in kindness and relenting from evil. Um, after he's like pissed that that God has has saved the um, God is merciful now, right? This uh, God in, in, in on these pages in this mode. Yeah, I mean, and this one of Alter's points yeah. is that the um, insofar as there's a kind of allegorical quality here or a, a shift represented by the the meaning of, of the story of Jonah, it's from the what is. You know the the more repeated theme of the kind of Israelites as a, a nation um, and a jealous nation uh, to this kind of universalist theme, um, and there are, both of them are always present to some extent. But certainly the the universalism is uh, always mediated by or, or tempered by the the covenantal aspect of the Jews' relationship with God, which is about them the unity of the nation. And here though, it's the Israelite being rebuked, uh, explicitly rebuked for not recognizing, uh, that God's mercy should extend to all people. Those who have accepted, those who have accepted God's warning that is, and, and heeded it. And I can't help but, but compare this explicitly with what happens in what was the Parsha, uh, we were just reading in the the cycle of reading the Torah, which is so the the the, the last parsha was the, it's Exodus uh, names, and it's about the Israelites fleeing Egypt, right? And in the kind of popular telling of that story, the Pharaoh's evil, uh, you know, he won't let the Israelites leave. They escape and then are wandering in the desert receive the Torah on Mount Sinai, make their way to Israel. In fact, at every point, you know, God hardens the Pharaoh's heart, right? So mm-hmm. like the, the plagues convince Pharaoh at a certain point to let the Israelites go, right? Then God deliberately hardens Pharaoh's heart so that the Israelites will have to flee so that this confrontation will ensue. So, it's not like mercy is the only or the ultimate quality of God. It's not a God. Uh, this is not a God of mercy alone. That the one of the things that emerges in this kind of composite literary analysis is these meanings that are, in every isolated sense, contradictory, but require a meaning outside of how they exist in relation to each other uh, as, as any two specific incidences or moments. So this is not to say that ultimately you can resolve all contradiction by anything but an act of faith. Of course, it's not possible. You know, it, it 
faith is the acceptance of the contradiction on some level. Well, and it does also like I think it brings back to what you were talking about in that in our last section, which is that like it allows it clears a space for human psychology to give answers that we can understand only qua psychology right like so it says okay so here god's god's asking something really specific of jonah and i don't know why i keep on using Job as the alternate but like we also want to say like well what if, what if god was like being so shitty that he actually made like a deal with the devil to take your whole family away from you and like it is just like in each moment that we that you just brought up it is a moment of saying like okay so like what is jonah as a human yeah, doing, right. like, yeah, and, yeah. And what is that psychology? And, and it becomes, mm-hmm. and again, not to like harp on it, but like that becomes a, it's a metonym for what it means to be like a psychologically based person as opposed to some right. metaphor for how you should act. It's, it's also a question of, uh, so the book of Jonah in relationship to Job, you know, so Job is about justice, right? Uh, or is sort of questioning God's justice, right? Mm-hmm. Because, mm-hmm. you know, this guy is not sin, yes, the, the right? So this, in a way, Jonah is dealing with a similar top, topic, but in, in the reverse, right? So the Assyrians, mm-hmm. uh, by, you know, if you consider just, you know, there's one other book of the Bible that is just about Nineveh, right? And about the Assyrians, and that's the book of Nahum, which, you know, addresses the Assyrian emperor. There shall be no seed of your name anymore. I will cut off from the house of your god idols and molten image. I will lay out your grave for you are no of, uh, of no account. Um, because of all the whoring of the whore, the beguiling sorceress who ensnares nations with her whoring and clans with her spells, here I am against you, said the Lord of armies. I will lay bare your skirts over your face and show nation, nations your nakedness and kingdoms your shame, and I will fling foul things upon you and make you vile and make a spectacle of you, and it shall be that all who see you shall shrink from you and say, Nineveh is ravaged. Who will grieve for her? Right? Mm-hmm. So that's how another book of the – Damn. <laughs> <laughs> and everything was fine. I didn't realize I will lift your skirt up went back that far. <laughs> um, so that's how another book of the Bible thought about Nineveh and sort of exulted in her destruction, right? Um, and, you know, mercy – from a certain perspective, mercy is injustice as well, right? If you think about like, you know, Jake, we talked about Jean-Amarie, right? Mm-hmm. Like – you know how do you, how after horrific evil um horrific abuse do you come to a place of forgiveness and atonement right like you know the the assyrians were kind of famous for brutality um the you know they were sort of had these kind of extravagant tortures they would do things like you know murder a father's children in front of him and then put out his eyes so it was the last thing that he'd seen um, the Assyrian kings uh, really floridly bragged about their uh, their violence. This is from uh, Sennacherib, who's one of the Assyrian uh, emperors, uh, describing what he did to the people of Elam. I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. My prancing steeds harnessed for my riding, I plunged into the streams their blood as into a river. The wheels of my war chariot, which brings low the wicked and the evil, were bespattered with their blood and filth. With the bodies of their warriors, I filled the plain like grass. Testicles I cut off and tore out their genitals like the seeds of cucumbers. So, um, (laughs) yeah. That that last bit is crucial, yeah. uh, and so you, you, <laughs> you sort of understand the you know the call to be like, hey, go and get these people to repent so that they're going to be fine and disaster will be averted. You know, it's sort of like yeah. But the reason why alter 
makes uh, a point of describing this as an unusually universalist right. uh, book is because, you know, look, this is one of the kind of um, defining distinctions between, uh, you know, the Jewish conception of God and the Christian conception of God in the kind of archetypal sense is a, is between a, uh, you know, a, a covenant between a particular nation and the God of that nation, who is also the God of the universe and a universalist creed accessed through the church or through faith. And the, the distinction is made not always in ways where the logic admits of a reading by any one uh, person or reader between enemies of the Israelites who need to be utterly destroyed and wiped from the earth who are there like the Amalekites mm. and the sort of uh, standard like bad Canaanite idol worshiping antagonists who are, you know, you, you got to deal with and who are an example of like, you know, the kind of thorn in your side. But the, the, this idea that there are people who are beyond redemption is there Clearly, and it's not always like the the moral calculus doesn't admit of a straightforward reading like this number of sins ripping out testicles like cucumber seeds <laughs> means that you're one of the people who need to be That's wiped so from the bad. earth. It's just like God's telling you these are the people who are so evil. And the, the, the you know this is for another time. It'd be a bit much to get into now. But with the Amalekites, it's basically. The descendants of the Amalekites don't get wiped out when God commands it the first time. And that's how the story of Esther occurs, mm-hmm. right? So Haman is the descendant of the Amalekite king who didn't get wiped out when he was supposed to get wiped out several generations ago and then comes back in and like this is what happens. Now he's going to try and – kill you all this time. But it's not like you well, can look at this and say this level of sin is what merits God's ultimate punishment, you know? Right. It's not a one-to-one like that. So can I actually take like a little bit of right-hand turn like right off of that though? Because it's the other thing I was interested in and like what you guys thought about it, which is that um, – so like I definitely – my mind immediately in like a portion like the one that we were just talking about go in like dismemberment and – and the wrathful God goes to like, I think the place that I find this language reflected in contemporary literature most. So like I think about Cormac McCarthy or Tony Morrison, like t- talks on beloved and Sula about, about like she has a great essay about the relationship between reading the Bible and, and where it made her think about that or Marilyn Robinson or, and, and, and actually like just jumping back to the King James, like I mean, the King James version 1611, like that's like central, um Shakespeare on into Milton territory. So like it feels like this is all like the carryover between the secular and the, yeah. the sacred text. And like I don't know, like is that the main mode where where novelists now take it? Like I think my 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 desire as a novelist is not to just like go for those moments where I'm like, huh, if I'm gonna stove someone's head in, where was someone's head stoved in in the Bible? But to but to have like a broader, more capacious sense of it. But is that like the like is that the place people tend to go? Is what the place people tend to go? Uh, to to uh, to the dismemberment and, and the uh, and like the wrathful, angry, 
tearing open of testicles and lightning well, bolts. Well, that's why I mean that's why I like Jonah so much. I mean, it's a story of mercy. It's 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 comic. It's I mean, I I, I think you know we <laughs> we're somewhat uncomfortable enjoying this story and all of its weirdness and comicness if we have this very sort of dour kind of lesson like lesson generating didactic lesson generating desire to get something from the bible you know it's kind of painful reading like augustine on jonah right because he's he yeah. just like he yeah. wants to be so literal um and uh you know part of it you know one of the, one of the reasons that it endures one of the reasons it's such a powerful text is because it's it's comic and absurd and beautiful all at the same time um and some of the language is great the 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 set piece scenes are just fantastic um you know and just the the belly of the whale uh there's a great by the way there's this medieval like middle english poem called patience which is a retelling of the uh uh, the story of Jonah and like reflecting on the <laughs> virtue of patience. And I just v- want to very quickly read the section where they describe uh, Jonah and the whale. <clears throat> this is a modern translation of the Middle English. But Jonah was kept alive by God, although he held no hope for himself in the whale's stomach as it glided through the deep and dark waters. Jonah was carried headfirst through muck and filth, forth, forced through intestines that were wide enough for him to be suck, sucked head over heels as he was drawn along until he came to a chamber as large as a hall. And there he found his footing and took his bearings. Jonah stood up in vomit and filth that stank like the devil. It felt like being in hell, but here he made his home and at last found safety. He moved cautiously and searched about for the best shelter he could find, and in every nook of the innards, every organ and bowel that he came across, he could find no relief from the stench and the slime. But God is always a friend. Um, anyway. Just <laughs> uh, so shifting of tone there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, speaking of the um, speaking of the psalm and the, the beauty of the language, rather. Do, do you want to just read it? Yeah, let me read. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It'll be a bit long. But let me read a, a bit. So in the middle of the story of Jonah, uh, while Jonah is in the belly, we call it a whale, but it's just a great fish. Um, and, and in the middle of this, Jonah prays to the Lord, his God, from the innards of yeah. the fish. And he said, and here are just some of my favorite lines from this poem that comes in the middle from the belly of the fish. I called out from my straits to the Lord, and he answered me. From the belly of Shoal, I cried out, you heard my voice. You flung me into the deep in the heart of the sea, and the current came round me. All your breakers and waves streamed over me. Skipping ahead a bit. Water lapped about me to the neck. The deep came round me. Weed was bound around my head. To the roots of the mountains I went down. To the underworld's bolts against me forever. And then to the very end... And I, with a voice of thanksgiving, let me sacrifice to you what I vowed, let me pay. Rescue is the Lord's. Rescue is the Lord's. Um, and then the narrative returns, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry uh, land. Unbelievable. <laughs> and the, the juxtaposition between the, you know, the, the diction of rescue is the Lord's and vomited Jonah onto <laughs> yeah. the dry land is incredible. I'll tell you yeah. who this makes me think of. You know, you're talking about sort of the gore and the the, the quality of the language. 
Charles Portis, a great American writer, hmm. Marine veteran who died last week. I mean, is about the most biblical of the 20th century American writers. Uh, far so more, far more so than Faulkner, for instance, in my opinion, though people talk about Faulkner as if he had a kind of a biblical quality to him. Uh, so, so I can't remember who said it. Somebody had a great line about Portis that uh, he could have been Cormac McCarthy, but he wanted to be funny instead, um, <laughs> which is like perfect because he's yep. that that kind of severe, awesome, you know, stark, unsentimental McCarthy quality, but without any of the gothicness and with like the comic mysteriousness, the mysterious comedy of something like Jonah and Portis, who's probably most famous for true grit. I think literary people will tell you that his best novel is the dog of the South, which is an extraordinary novel that uh, I couldn't recommend highly enough, but I would say anybody who wants to read Charles Portis to get started should just start with true grit. Don't overthink it. Yeah. There's a John Wayne movie and a Coen Brothers movie, but there's a reason why there's a John Wayne movie and a Coen Brothers movie because True Grit yeah. is just one of the the great the great American novels, and it's the language of it has this quality where the gore and the violence are just part of the kind of they're just part of the landscape. The ter- you know the awful mystery of the landscape everything that enchants it and gives it beauty and which would be killed by over explanation um it's all just sort of imbued into the quality of the landscape and um that's probably a a sort of obvious attempt by me to to pigeonhole the mention of charles portis into the conversation but uh well no but i think i mean i think one of the things that i've seen through some of this reading that i've been doing the last couple of years is just how much so, like, when you think about that, like, Charles Portis or, or Cormac McCarthy, mm. um, like, some of that spareness in, in some of the, like, one of the things that I notice a lot is, like, the, the sort of, like, doubling of adjectives as, or nouns as adjectives that, that's, like, a super King James move. Mm-hmm. Like, the cadences and some of the sort of, like, almost, like, mm. F. Scott Fitzgerald style pouring out of, of adjectives in, like, a very stark way, like, feels super King Jamesy. Whereas, like, when I read Faulkner... I actually think like alters tune money Europe to seeing that like so he's just like parataxis out the ass right like he's just pushing really fucking hard on just and 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 until you're like not quite even sure whether you're like in the south anymore or right right to, like some 19th century plantation island um and in fact like one thing about the rest of the art of biblical narrative like thinking about that Jonah section you just read is I mean he really bears down on like the way the dialogue is almost sort of like, like modern dialogue is invented by the, by the, by the Bible, that there's this way in which like the, the biblical writers would choose when to allow a character to speak in their voice. And in fact, like he goes into this really close reading of an Esau line where he's speaking in almost like, he literally like Alter says like, it's like Bakhtin, Bakhtinian polyglossia, heteroglossia, the way that like he brings in just kind of like scaz or sometimes like a character syntax will break down. And that seems more of like a different, I don't think you read much of that out of the kingdom. You could read I, the kingdom Bible very, very closely I also think and, that, not, and not bring that home, you know? That bit that you, 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 you said about Portis and humor though, you know, I, I think a lot of times we, 
we sort of think of 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 humor as being a break from the serious, right? Like um, mm. a, a sort of moment of relief. And actually, I find with McCarthy, like he's not funny enough to be really serious, you know. Or sometimes he's inadvertently funny, mm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, because it's it's yeah, so you can laugh, self-serious. You can laugh at the judges' uh, alopecia if you chose to. And and um and I think that humor is an important way of looking at and approaching the world and recognizing it for what it is. You know, there's a wonderful bit that Auden says uh, where he's talking about sort of the comic and the religious impulses. And he says, the man who takes seriously the command of Christ to take up his cross and follow him must, if if he is serious, see himself as a comic figure. For he is not the Christ, only an ordinary man, yet he believes that the command, be ye perfect, is seriously addressed to him, right? Um, Mm. And that that... Um, a certain degree of comic flexibility, of appreciation for absurdity and the wildness of the world and the ways in which it, you know, isn't sort of perfectly schematized and yet uh, can be greeted and apprehended by the human. And uh, and not under your control. Ultimately. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, that's that, very astute. Yeah. That, that, is, mm-hmm. that is essential to approaching the world seriously to approaching, you know, your position as a human being in this existence in a serious way. Um, and so if you don't have any element of the comic, you're just a little bit less serious than people who do. I yeah. Think. And that's, you know, it's actually like a perfect version yeah. also to, to like whatever weird bugbear I have about the more modern readings that Alter gives. Cause like, I mean, he's really interested in Kafka's parables and, you know, it's like the most famous aspect of, of Kafka biography that like, you know, even the most depressing of the stories, supposedly according to Max Brode and all the friends, when he would read them, people would like be rolling in their eyes laughing. And they're like, we actually miss a lot of the humor in Kafka if we like, if we don't understand that it was meant to be absurd. If, Dan, you're saying Alter was interested like, in like Kafka's deep. parables? It's, it's, it's like, it's actually like an Ouroboros of this conversation, which is that like, if you don't understand that that version of the Bible is supposed to be funny, then you really don't understand how funny it was supposed to be. Dan, you're saying that Alter is interested in uh, Kafka's parables? Yes, very. Oh, okay. yes. He was, I mean, he in, in his contemporary, uh, in, I mean, in his complex stuff, uh, comparative list stuff, he was always talking about um, and has written about uh, Kafka and, and Beckett and like definitely the sort of like most um, biblically inspired versions of them. Interesting. Well, I feel like, first of all, I haven't said this yet. I was going to say, I feel like we could go on for hours. I have not enjoyed a – did I say this on the air yet? I don't know. We'll cut this out. I haven't enjoyed a selection of texts this much. Um, maybe since we started this thing, I, I feel like uh, – man, I, I I get so much out of thinking about the literariness yeah. uh, uh, of, the, um, of the biblical texts. And I it, – it really – makes me think of in the way I think Alter very much intended he accomplishes it makes me think of literature differently it makes me mm-hmm. think of mm-hmm. you know it's not just reading literariness back into the Bible and, and if, if anything that to me is almost more obvious maybe I just take it for granted because I've read the Alter translations before I feel like the more profound effect is that it makes me think of 
literature in more religious terms, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you know, when we first, start, first started picking this up, like the first thing that came to my mind was just like how when we all flipped out for James Wood as he was starting to put together like the first collections of his essays, we were like, holy shit, like what James Wood has done is he's the most important critic, but he reads contemporary literature as if it were the sort of like next step in religious texts, right? And in a weird way, it's like, well, yeah, but we like him because like that's, that's the, that is the tradition, mm. right? Like Matthew, Matthew Arnold certainly read that way, right? right? Yeah. Like I mean, I mean, even if he would never in a million years want to admit it, like I think Randall Jarrell read that way too, and I know Lionel Trolling read that way. Like there's a way in which it's like, yeah, like that exegesis is the deal, right? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Well, this has been fantastic. I would say uh, to listeners, uh, Dan Torde's uh, novels are great. Uh, they're also Flood Apocalypse West is. Um, it's like a turn. It's 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 it starts out as like a memoir of World War II, the the memoir of the main character's uncle of World War II, and then there's a sort of turn on it that is fascinating in terms of how we think about and, and talk about war experience, and just very smart and 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 sly. Boomer One, um, which is out in paperback now, is uh, very current. Uh, it's it is a, a sort of millennial. Uh, who has been stymied in his intellectual professional dreams um, inadvertently starts a, a terrorist movement against the baby boomers. Phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, a very of- sympathetic character. <laughs> I, did, I did apparently create OK Boomer, for which I both apologize and do not apologize. You should not apologize <laughs> at all. And... Um, uh yeah, just uh one forgot. It has been fantastic having you on. I will also say uh we really do um we've been incredibly hard and, and, and really appreciate everyone who has supported us on Patreon, which you can you can uh find the manifesto page if you want to support us. Uh thank you uh to everyone who has. We are working on uh some content right now for our Patreon subscribers. I think we're going to do a discussion of Zadie Smith's essay on Justin Bieber. Yeah. Um so, so Zadie Smith on Bieber will be a, a Patreon special feature, and you know we're figuring out exactly um, how the Patreon stuff is going to work. But look for the, the link yeah. on our Twitter page, and look out for stuff like uh, Phil and I talking about <laughs> um, essays that we pick, essays that you pick. Um, but yeah, thank you, or other works support. of art or whatever. Yeah, so word. word up, guys. This was a total pleasure. Thank you for giving me the time. Great having you, Dan. Thanks. It was wonderful. Thank you. All right. Peace. Thanks, man. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius.